You are listening to the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school coaches looking to help others spread their passion for the coaching profession. Tune in for more episodes for anything coaching related in game, outside of the game, and anything in between. On today's episode, brought to you by VREP's Virtual Playbook, we are joined by Mike Winters, head boys basketball coach at Harlem High School and author of his new book, The Journey, Lessons from the Hardwood. Coach, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. We are very excited to have you on. So uh, we always start with, uh, we call it pregame warm-ups. We used to call it the opening tip, uh, just a way to, to get the, the guests comfortable and, and kind of just talking. So we wanted to start for you specifically with the process of writing a book. Um, obviously, you know, Todd and I are both coaches. I don't think I could take on writing a book, but uh, no, I have no clue how to start that. So we wanted to go through, you know, first of all, what made you decide to write the book? Kind of how did you start? And then kind of just take us through the process. Well, I think the book was born probably much like your podcast, you know, the pandemic hit and, and a little bit of boredom set in. And, um, you know, just it's something that it's a passion of mine. Helping coaches is a passion of mine. It's something I've always liked doing. I, I love speaking at coaches, coaches clinics. Uh, I love doing podcasts and coaches roundtables and stuff like that. We did a virtual roundtable as well for several months there during the pandemic. Where we were just trying to share the game a little bit. And, and so that's kind of where it started. And, and uh, you know, for me, it was really it's everything I wish I had as a guide when I started 25 plus years ago. And, you know, we just don't get that. You, you get bits and pieces and sometimes you stumble across this here at a clinic or you stumble across this from a coach that, that happens to be a mentor or a friend, but you just don't get it all in one place. And, and for me, it, it was really about everything from, uh, you know, how to value, you know, the importance of valuing the relationships. I think early on, I kind of missed that as a young coach. Uh, how to build your your coaching philosophy, X's and O's wise, and and uh, you know just across the board, and um, you know it, it's just uh, just a lifetime of lessons learned. I've been been really lucky to be a part of this game for you know over thirty years now, between being a player in high school and, and coaching at the high school level. So been blessed, and just wanted to pass some of that on to everybody. So I have a, a just a quick follow up. You mentioned being, you know, a mentor. I'm just curious, who were some of your mentors in the Illinois high school game? You know, as you started your coaching career, I think that's interesting. Yeah. So for me, my brother-in-law, uh, actually, Dean Marnetti was, uh, you know, he wasn't my brother-in-law at the time, but uh, he had. So I, I served one year with my former high school coach Ed Harriman, and I was 19 and uh, coaching 17, 18 year olds at the varsity level. And the next year he had moved on and my, my future brother-in-law came in and took over the position and, and uh, hired me on as a head freshman coach. And I spent five years with him side by side, but obviously, you know, we're still together, um, you know, family get togethers and all that stuff. And, and so he's been a, a big mentor of mine, Carl Armato, uh, Carl Armato played at Northern Illinois university. He was a captain there back in the early eighties and, and has been just a, a great college and high school head coach in our area. You know, I'd certainly consider Carl a mentor and Jack McCarthy, another just a great high school coach who he was Jack McCarthy was that guy that always he always coached at the school that didn't have much talent and, uh, you know, and, and didn't win a ton of games. But the guys who coached against him respected him a ton and, and knew that upset upset could happen any night. So those are a few guys that took me under their wing. There's, man, countless more, but uh, three that really had a big impact on me when I was young. So. I think first we wanted to give you a chance to kind of promote your program, talk about your guys, 
Uh, and then I kind of got a second part of the question of how you're preparing for the season. But like I said, first sure. thing first, you know, let, let you toot your program's own horn it a little bit. All right. Well, so this program is, uh, this was kind of the ultimate rebuild for us. Um, you know, when I took over Harlem High School, this is my fifth season. Uh, historically, just, just not a strong program. Just really not a lot of great history to draw off of. I left more than Catholic high school in Rockford, Illinois, which is one of the stronger programs in the in state history. Um, just a tremendous program and a, and a great job, but private school paycheck doesn't always pay the bills uh, or it, it'll pay the bills, but that's about it. And uh, so I, you know, I was just sitting there like, you know, I want to retire before I'm 75 or 80 years old. So I just kind of had to unfortunately move on from a great position, took a year off and went and got a master's degree and just kind of, uh, kind of, re-energized in this Harlem job opened up. We happen to live in the district. Uh, for me, it was an opportunity to coach my son again. My son is a junior now. And, and uh, you know, it, it also was a challenge I, I needed. You know, I had never had a losing season in my career, uh, taking over a place like Harlem. For me, it was just at that time was the opportunity to find out how, how good I really was, to be honest with you. And um, so our first year, we won nine games. It was my first losing season ever. Uh, we went six and 12 in the conference and people were excited about that. I was ready. I was ready to quit. I'm like, maybe I can't do this. I was ready to quit. And people were excited about it. So year two, we won 20 games. Uh, we won a regional for just the second time in like 44 years in school history. Um, so we were, you know, trending the right direction. Year three, we had nine seniors graduate. It was a rebuild situation for sure. And then our best player was lost for the entire season. So we went 500 in the league, finished right at about 500 in the season. And uh, last year in the uh, pandemic shortened year, we went 10 and four. We took second in our league, didn't have a postseason to play. Um, you know, we are on, certainly on pace for a 20 win season last year uh, if we had been able to play the entire season. So we're getting there. You know, I, the, year three, I think, was a big key for us. When we were able to go nine and nine, uh, you know, I told my assistants, I'm like, as historically bad as this program has been, if our down years from here on out are 500 in our league, we're going to be okay. So feel like we've kind of turned the corner. We've got some, a lot of talent coming back. We've got uh, three starters returning who two of them got all conference recognition. One of them probably was right there knocking on the door of that. And um, we've got a really strong junior class coming up with them, a class that went 26 and three as freshmen. And uh, then we kind of split them up a little bit their sophomore year. We took a few of them up to the varsity level. And, and so now they're kind of reuniting as well. So we're excited. Uh, we think we're in a really good spot. Our league is going to be super competitive, uh, probably more so this year than any other year. So we've got our work cut out for us. But I uh, feel like we've positions our, positioned ourselves really well, and we've got our culture in a really good spot. All right. So then that takes me into preparing for this season, right? We're going to throw out last year because nobody right. had a playbook for that one. None of us, no, as much as we're prepared, as much as we've thought about things, nobody had nobody had anything ready for that. So we had a normal summer, um, you know, as much as we can here, and now we're getting into a, a, what is supposed to be a regular year, right? Full season, playoffs, all that. So right, how yeah. are, are yeah, the air quotes? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah, we got it. All right. So how is your 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 staff and you preparing? for that season as well as preparing your players? Well, here in Illinois, we don't get to do any skill of sports stuff uh, during this time of year. So, and, and I know some states are that way. Some other states, I know California can do whatever they want, whatever they want. I think, I think Georgia has very few limitations. I'm, it's funny, just talking to more coaches across the country and finding this stuff out. But so we primarily focus on uh, really heavy in the weight room. Starting next week, we'll move on to preseason conditioning where we're actually doing a lot more cardio stuff. 
Uh, we do a lot of injury prevention stuff, a lot of knee and ankle strength, um, trying to strengthen ligaments and tendons and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do, uh, like I said, we'll continue to lift. We, we do play at open gym a little bit. We try to encourage them to get shots up first, but we really can't control that at open gym. So you're, you're kind of dependent upon some, some self-motivated kids to kind of take the reins and, and say, hey, let's, let's, let's get 100 shots up. Let's do this before we start playing. And uh, our open gym times are limited, man. We, we had, our, our homecoming this year is in October. So we had a lot going on. And we're, we're lucky if we get one open gym a week in October right now. But, you know, my feeling on, on open gym, it's kind of a necessary evil. You know, it's a way to get the kids, keep the kids engaged. Where, you know, where you're really gaining right now is in the weight room and doing that speed and agility stuff, doing that uh, conditioning stuff and getting them ready physically. So, now I kind of want to let kind of dig a little deeper. So obviously, you know, you've, you've, I believe this is your fifth program that you've, you've been in. It is. Yeah, it is. So, you know, you were at Oregon, you were at Rockford Boylan, um, you were at Jefferson, you were at Rock Falls, now Harlem. You know, I, I really want to go into this. This will be my sixth year running the high school program that I run. Um, but I, I kind of want you to talk about, you had mentioned culture. It's a big, it's, that's a big deal to me. But how do you go about laying the foundation at each school? Obviously, you've now taken over five times. There was you had to lay that foundation at each one. And then it's kind of a second part of that is what were things you did similar at each of those? Rockford, you know, Rockford, Boylan, Oregon, sure. Jefferson, Rock Falls, Harlem. And then what are some things that you changed over time in laying that foundation? I think, you know, I think this is one thing that a lot of young coaches need to hear. When you take over a program, it cannot be about your ego and you have to be flexible. I think, you know, we, we all get really geeked up for our first head coaching job, right? And we've got this vision of, you know, we've got these things that we like to do, things that we've been exposed to that we just, man, we're going to press, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But then you get there and, and your guys maybe aren't really able to do all of the things that you want to do. And you also got to realize that's a tough situation for the kids as well. Like they didn't ask for a coaching change. In some cases, it might be a blessing. In some cases, maybe they, it was a coach they were really fond of or really close to. So it, it, you have to be flexible. So the answer to your question is it, it has been very different every time I've taken over a program. You know, when I was, Oregon was my first head coaching job. We were fortunate to have a group of seniors who were ready to win right away. So we jumped in and, and um, you know, we, we had a, a system that, you know, I had in mind. But I learned right off the bat, there were some things that they were really good at. And I had a couple holdovers from the staff that said, you know, you might want to consider this because these guys just do these things really well. And I was kind of, okay, let's, let's see it. Let's take a look at it. You know, we're talking X's and O's offensively, especially. And I'm like, yeah, I'm good with that. You know, they, you're right. They, they look comfortable with it. They look like they run it pretty well. I get to Rockford Jefferson as my alma mater, but the, you know, our basketball IQ wasn't great at Rockford Jefferson. There's no feeder program. Um, really wasn't the kid's fault that the system was just kind of failing them a little bit, but man, we had talent. We had D one talent across the board. We had probably we had three different D one players there in the, in the two years I was the head coach there. And in both of those first two situations, the teaching situation, you know, you get, you get pink slipped, you get riffed as a new teacher and sometimes you just got to move on. So those, those just didn't work out from a teaching standpoint. You get to Rock Falls, and Rock Falls is a, a traditionally a, a Class A powerhouse. Now, in Illinois, we had two classes until 2007, and then we expanded to four classes. So I moved to Rock Falls in 2005, still in that two-class system. And their coach left because they got bumped up from the lower school class to the, to the upper school class. So their coach thought they couldn't win anymore. 
So I get there and these guys are really just kind of, kind of distraught over the whole thing, right? They're, they're, they're upset. They're, they're expected to be the best team in class A and they would have been. And uh, now they got to play with the big boys. And so I, even more so, I just kind of like, Hey, show me what you guys run. Show me what you guys like. Tell me what you like about what you ran. Tell me what you don't like. And this was a program that really high IQ kids, they were running probably 40, 50 sets. I mean, just a ton of them. And so there was about two days where I sat there with a notepad and just kind of scribbled stuff down and, okay, I like this. I don't like that. We probably saved 20 sets that they were already good at. So we could just kind of keep, keep running. You know what I mean? They were, they were super talented. Uh, uh, they gelled really well together, great chemistry. And I, I didn't want to get in the way of that. I just wanted to, to try to enhance it any way I could. So, you know, long story short, again, let your players tell you what you should be doing. I think that's, I think that's, uh, the mistake that too many young coaches make is they just, they ignore what's right in front of them. And that's, that's their talent level, their skill level, their IQ level run with that stuff first and then build off of that. You know, it doesn't mean you can't add your own, your own touches here and there, but um, you know, you, you have to get kids to want to play for you early on. And I think there's a, a way you can, you can meet them in the middle when you're taking over a program. So I want to get into, you said, you mentioned you left coaching uh, to get your master's kind of took that break. Yep. Um, you know, why was that important for you to, to get your master's um, or, or was that something that as a result of taking that break, you thought, uh, you know, like what was, what was kind of the situation there? Was that something you were looking to do or, and the opportunity came along or, you know what I mean? Or vice versa. Yeah, it, it just all kind of fell into place. I, I, I mentioned being at Boiling Catholic and, and just needing to move into a public school situation with a better, you know, getting back to our, our pension system in the state of Illinois. Our, our pension is really good. But in the private sector, I didn't have that working at, at Boiling Catholic. Um, I made this is a huge mistake I made when I was young. And when I when I took my first head coaching job, I was in the middle of a master's degree program. And I dropped a class my first year as a head coach in January because it was just I just couldn't handle it. It was too much, you know, first season, all that stuff. And uh, then I did it again the second year of the program. So I was two classes shy of a master's degree for the longest time. And, uh, and by the time I started it, eight years later, the program was no longer available. So I had to literally start over. Um, good news is now I'm up towards the top of the pay scale. But a lot of that was just about moving on the pay scale as a teacher, um, you know, putting my family in better position, all of those things. But it also uh, enabled me to be certified in the business department, which before I was a social science teacher. So it just kind of as luck happened, the, the job that, that was right in my, in my district that I live in, needed a business teacher. So it just kind of fell into place. And as I said earlier, that was the opportunity to coach my kid again, which I would have lost at the private school um, by, leave, by leaving more than Catholic. So, you know, it's funny sometimes how things fall into place. Like sometimes us teachers get bounced around a little bit. And, uh, you know, as coaches, we choose to leave sometimes and we're kind of forced to leave other times because of teaching situations. My wife is also an elementary education, education teacher. So we actually left Rock Falls because her teaching job was eliminated completely. Their district in, in nearby Dixon, Illinois, just got rid of art. They just just done. So as an art teacher, we were kind of out in a rural area. We had to get back to the Rockford area where it was just a little more metropolitan area and more opportunities for her. So it's just it's so funny how sometimes you sit back and you're like, man, how did I get here? Like, you know, never, never imagined leaving this place or, or being at this place. But, you know, life uh, life takes you on a, a funny journey sometimes. All right, so then let's get into the, like, I guess, the side effect of that, of being out of coaching, right, for, for a year or, you know, for that time. How was that like to adjust to it? Um, 
or, or was it one of those things where you're so busy with your masters and trying to get that, you know, cause you know, even during COVID, right. You're, you come to November and you're not coaching and you're like, we're all looking around like, well, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do here? Like, right. We're right. We're right. Uh, not quite sure. Podcast, I have, right. Well, right. Books, podcasts, but I got all this time. So what was that like when, when you took that time off and how did you adjust? Yeah, it wasn't really a lot of time off. It was a 13 month accelerated program. So it was one of those where it kind of slaps in the face and keeps slapping in the face for 13 months. And, you know, papers are due every Saturday night and all that stuff. And I continued to coach my son's travel baseball team. I've always tried to be really active with my kids stuff. Um, so I, I didn't really have a lot of time and I didn't miss a lot until like mid February came around. It's like, okay, they're talking about the big game in the conference tonight. Okay. I'm going to go to the gym tonight and just watch this game. And then the postseason rolls around and there's just, there's nothing like that feeling Like you just can't replace that, you know, no matter what. And you hear coaches talk about it all the time. Who have retired that just, you know, they just miss those, those Friday night lights, you know, whether it's in the gym or out in the football field or whatever it is, it's just, it's hard to replace that rush of adrenaline and that, that camaraderie and just so many things that you miss about it. So about February of that year, I kind of knew like, all right, this program is going to be done in a couple months. I got to start looking. And honestly, there were only a couple of jobs in the area I would have gone back for. Uh, my kids were pretty well established in their schools. We didn't want to move them. So it really became about, you know, if man, if this one opens up at Harlem, it'd be perfect. Um, we're ready for a challenge anyways. And uh, maybe one or two others in the area that we might have taken a close look at, but it just timing wise, it just worked out. Like I said, I've been pretty lucky with that stuff. So, by the way, as somebody that's currently getting their masters and trying to coach at the same time, I come you know <laughs> I can relate yeah. in every single way possible. So now, now I kind of want to go into the X's and O's. I, I kind of asked you kind of about laying the foundation in the in the five schools you've been at, but now let's dig a little deeper into the X's and O's. In those five schools you've been at, do you feel X's and O's wise that you've done some of the similar things? Because um, I know for me, even in year six of the program I run, I've completely changed from the, my year yeah. one to year six, what I've done X's and O's wise. So do you feel like you've done something similar? Do you feel like over your years you've adapted, um, you know, or each school, do you change completely every time? I think there's, there, for, for me, there's always been a core there. You know, our break has always stayed the same. Uh, certain secondary quick hitters have always stayed the same. But I, again, I think we've been very different. When I was at Rockford Jefferson, some of my best teams, we took fourth in the state there in 2005. And, um, you know, we were 6'6", 6'8", 6'10". But like I said already, our, we didn't have a strong background in terms of a high IQ. So we really had to and, and we had guys that just didn't remember sets very well. Like we just really struggled with that. So we had to invent some ways to get our kids to buy in and, and move the basketball. So we, we started charting what we call lane touches. Um, we would just, we would chart every, every possession was either a lane touch or no lane touch. Either the ball physically went into the paint or it didn't. And from there we would chart results. We would chart, you know, did we, if it went in the lane, what we generally found is when we had a lane touch on possession, we'd score about 75% of the times so we'd score at least one point. When we didn't, it was usually 30% or less. And we just kept force feeding those numbers to our kids. Just, all right, we got, how do we get it in the paint? You know, we didn't, we just kind of left it open. You can drive it there. You can throw it inside because we were big. Um, but we just really had to, I don't know if brainwash is the right word, but yeah, yeah it probably is. But really had just had to brainwash them with those numbers because we were not going to out scheme anybody, you know? So we just had to get great buy-in. And they, you know, they saw the results. They saw the, you know, the wins piling up when the numbers correlated, uh, the, the result was a win. And, and so 
you know, that was something we had to kind of invent along the way. But yeah, I mean, even, even, you know, from last year to this year, uh, we'll be a little bit different. Our talent's a little bit different. Um, we're going to open it up a little more for our guys this year. Uh, maybe stress a little more motion principles. I personally have always liked quick hitters to start the offense. I, I, I love the, I love the concept. I love the idea of motion. I've tried to read and react before. I've tried a lot of different things where I'm always continuously disappointed as early offense. Like it's just, it's too stagnant. I, and I just don't think, um, I think for me, it's always been uh, better. We just want a quick hitter. It may just be a simple horn set. It doesn't have to be anything super extravagant, but it's something where I know we're going to get X amount of passes, screens, and maybe a reversal or two. And we still do a ton of motion breakdown drills. You know, we still try to get them to just uh, really be concept driven after that set either breaks down or finishes. And we haven't gotten a shot yet. We try to keep that flow moving and going. But I personally, and again, this is this is what I didn't know 27 years ago. Personally, I know now that I just can't tolerate that stagnant early offense. I've got to have control over it. I've got to know what kind of actions we're going to get and be able to dictate that a little bit, be able to be matchup driven or whatever it is. And, uh, but then kind of let the kids go. Now, one thing I always do, and I always give the kids this option. I always tell them, I said, look, if, if you run your break really well, you push the ball and you get it to the other side of the floor and you start breaking the defense down, I'm happy sitting down and just letting you play, you know? So I, I always kind of put it back on them. And I think that's something you learn to do as coaches. You learn to leverage um, things. You, you learn to make it so that you're not the bad guy, even though in a way you are controlling things you, like, Hey, I gave you the opportunity. You're just not moving the ball. So now I'm going to step in and run a bunch of sets and we're going to make sure the ball moves one way or another. So um, that's a big part of who we are. Um, you know, our kids know that if, if they, if they push the ball and swing the ball and attack, I'll sit down. <laughs> if they don't, I'll stand up and I'll just, I'll just open up the playbook. So I think any opportunity you have as a coach, it doesn't have to be X's and O's, whatever it is, give them the opportunity to decide it, you know? And I think that a lot of that goes all the way back to your preseason. You know, we write a vision statement. Uh, we set goals. You know, we, we, we come up with our core standards or principles or whatever you want to call them. But I always bring it back to, all right, what do you need me to do? What do you need us to do as coaches? And the beauty of that is, is kids will always say the right things. They'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. They'll say, we need you to push us even when we don't feel like working those days or, you know, don't let us off the hook, make us do this, make us do that. And I think when you do that in preseason, you know, you have the opportunity to, you don't have to be the bad cop all the time. You know, you just, just remind them, Hey, remember what you told me my job was right. Not let you off the hook on days like this when we don't feel like doing what we're supposed to do. So I think anytime you can, uh, put it on the kids and, and uh, you know, Hey, remember, this is what you wanted to do. Um, I think, I think you, you've got the opportunity to make connections there. And, and, uh, and again, I think kids today really struggle with, with constant yelling, constant, you know what I mean? They need discipline, but you have to be a little more creative on how you get them that discipline. And hopefully a little bit can be, you know, I think they put it on themselves. I think you, you've, you've opened some doors as a coach and, uh, you know, can really, I think, be consistent uh, with your output with your kids every day. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that was really great stuff there, coach. That was, that was so awesome. That's, I think that's worthwhile for, for any coach, to be honest, uh, you know, especially going go to different places. And, and like you said at the beginning, if you have six, 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 eight, six, ten, that probably helps too, right? Yeah. Can I have that? That always helps. Where do you, where do you find those guys? And, can I have a couple I, I did of have a seven girls? footer too. So I had a seven footer rock falls too, but I haven't had a whole lot of size since then. So <laughs> enjoy it while it's there. Cause it's uh, it's hit and miss for exactly. sure. All right. So 
uh, I want to talk about uh, your, your coaching staffs. Uh, obviously, when you're changing positions and going to different places, you inherit some coaches. You're maybe lucky enough to be able to bring some of your own people on. Um, so what are, what are things you look for in assistant coaches? Um, and then, you know, have you had any guys that you've tried to, to carry over with you at, at the places you've gone? And what are those things that they did that you wanted to bring them along? So, yeah, I think I'll start with this. Early on in my career, I was terrible at utilizing assistant coaches. I think I had this standard and this, this, this just things had to be done a certain way. I was kind of a OCD, whatever you want to call it. Like, I, and I just didn't trust people to do it the right way. And that was entirely on me. That wasn't on my assistant coaches, but I just wasn't great early on in my coaching career at delegating uh, and, and finding their strengths and, and, and helping them use them. Now I, I just, I want to empower them more and more. Like it doesn't matter what they, I think we, we get locked in sometimes with assistant coaches. I say we, because I'm talking about my past history here, you know, but I'm sure others have, have had the same things where you get locked in on what coaches can't do. And it, it sometimes really paralyzes you and, and you really got to find what they can. do. And so I've got a, a couple of young coaches right now that have completely taken over our weight room program. Uh, I'm there sometimes I'm not there a lot of times. Uh, some days I come in, I'm like, man, I don't even know what this lift is. Show me what it is, you know, and just, but just put trust in them to do what they're good at. They've, they've just really thrived on that. And so, and that's something that, you know, I'm not in the same spot I was 20 years ago when I started, when I had no kids, you know, and I could do everything. Now I can't do that. Um, you know, when I, when I went back to coaching after that one year break, one of the things I told my wife is I'll, I'm going to continue to coach our kids teams. I'm going to find a way. Um, you know, I coach travel softball right now, which is 11 months out of the year. And, and uh, you know, it's, uh, it's just something I'm going to stay, stay into. And that's another thing that I, I tell our players, like, look, I, I'm, I'm leaving practice early tonight. My kid's got a game. I'm going to go watch it. Uh, you know, as much as I want to win tomorrow night, you know, you guys are fine without me. Um, and, and as much as, as much as I want to win tomorrow night, I need you guys to be leaders, to be good parents, to be all that stuff down the road as well. And if I don't show them what that looks like, who's showing them? You know, in some of these kids' houses, nobody's showing them. So, um, you know, I make sure that our assistants, kind of the Bruce Arians line, right? If you if I find out you miss your kids' recital or game or something, I'm going to fire you. Uh, we we try to live by that. Like it's we'll figure it out. You know, you're not here tonight. Okay, we'll we'll move things around and we'll cover each other. And um, you know, I think sometimes we take our jobs way too seriously. So, but yeah, back to you. I mean, and then there's a couple of assistants I've tried to bring with me from place to place. Um, Gordy Casper is a guy that, that coached me at Jefferson. We took fourth in the state and uh, brought him to Boylan. Actually, he was at Boylan before I got there. We kind of split when I went to Rock Falls. And when I came back, he was at Boylan for a while and then had hung it up and I'm kind of drug him back out there. Cause he knew me, he knew me really well. And, and uh, you know, when you're trying to, trying to step in for, I had to step in after, you know, one of the greatest coaching legends in all my history at Boylan. Steve Goers won 881 games there, and, and uh, I think he's second now to Gene Pingator. If Gore. you've ever seen Hoop Dreams, yeah, and if you've ever seen Hoop Dreams, you know Gene Pingator. You know he was in Hoop Dreams uh, back in the when was that the late 80s, early 90s, and um, you know so they tell you not to be the guy that follows the legend, but I kind of had enough ego that I was going to give it a shot, and uh, and so you know it was important for me to bring a guy like Gordy with so. Yeah, it's anytime you get that guy who's who wants to be in that role, and that's that's the role they they, they cherish, and they, they're good being the assistant, uh, and you can bring them with. That's always a great situation as well. 
Yeah, I, I will just say I completely agree with you. My first year as a head coach, I tried to do absolutely everything. And then yeah. I realized by year two or three, I was like, you know what? To give them ownership, you're in charge of this, you're in charge of this. Not only did it take things off my plate, it gives your assistants ownership. I, I think yeah. that was a great point you made there. Uh, and also shout out to Steve Gores. I, I serve on the IBCA board with him. I see him every year at the Hall of Fame meeting. Got to love yourself some Steve Gores. Steve's the best. You know, I, when I was teaching at Boylan, sometimes he would just come in. Uh, I'm in the middle of class. He'd just come in. He's retired. He'd wander in and, and uh, just start talking to me for 10, 15 minutes. We're in the middle of a lesson. And it's like, all right, it can wait. You know, it's, it's Coach Goer's time. We're going to hang out and talk. And uh, so, yeah, it was – I had a great experience uh, taking – Steve made it. Steve made it easy for me to be the guy that followed him. And that was something I really appreciated. So I, I do want to just dig into a little part of your master's degree. You know, we, we do our homework on our guests. And I saw that your master's degree is in instructional technology, which is a big part of obviously education today. And with COVID, it became a bigger part. But I want to right. hit on technology and coaching. You know, how do you feel technology and coaching has made things easier and let's also be honest, technology in the world today has also made coaching a little bit more challenging. So kind of just take us through technology wise for you. What are ways you use technology as a tool and maybe what challenges it may cause? I think the biggest benefits is, is programs like Huddle. Um, there's a lot of others popping up now. You know, we started with Crossover, which I loved, and then Huddle brought, brought Crossover all out. But I think scouting wise, like, you know, for, for my, for my marriage huddle has been great because I'm not gone every night. We have a night off out scouting. I, I was a guy that if I could be there in person scouting, I wanted to be the one there because I think, you know, you said, where, where does technology hurt us? It hurts us there a little bit because it's hard to gauge speed and size on film, right? In person, it's just different. So I think, um, you know, now we do probably 90% of our scouting uh, off of film. And sometimes we're a little surprised, man, this kid's faster than we thought he was or whatever it is. The other thing, obviously, the, the huge benefit with Huddle is the analytics that you get, the stats. Um, I think, and I, I love analytics, but I think that, I think the downside of analytics is we take them to be gospel too much, especially at the high school level. And one example I like to give is, you know, if you, if, if you live and die by analytics, they'll tell you that you can never shoot a 15 foot jump shot. Like you just shouldn't, you just shouldn't, you know, if you're looking at E field goal percentage, maybe not 15, but definitely not 17 foot jump shots. Right. Now I've got a kid on, on my team who, who that's all he can do. Like he's not good off the dribble. He's not a three point shooter, but he can knock down a mid range shot. If I, if I go off the analytics, analytics would tell me to tell that kid, I guess you just can't shoot because you don't shoot one of the two shots that, that factor into E field goal percentage and the way the game is being played today. But what we miss out on there is that kid, if he gets to knock down that shot, is going to be more bought in defensively. He's going to be a better rebounder. You know, he's going to do all the little things that I need him to do to, to, do to win. And at the high school level, how many times is that our number four and maybe our number five start where they're just not super talented offensively? They're good athletes. They'll work hard. They'll run through a brick wall for you. And now we just go off analytics and we say, sorry, you can't shoot anymore when they can make that shot. I think that's where you got to kind of take it with a grain of salt and just, you know, use your gut. Like if I can get a little more out of this kid by, by getting four or six points out of him from mid range, and he's just more bought in from start to finish, my team's going to be better despite what the analytics say. So, and, and like I said, I love it. I love that. I can look at and huddle and find out 
who my best five were last night together. Like what was the best lineup together? I love all those things, but I think people who say you can't do this or you can't do that because the analytics tell you that, I think we're losing touch with reality and with our teams a little bit. I think you, you have to know what's best for your team and analytics can help you, but they shouldn't be making all your decisions for you. All right. So now I want to go into some late game philosophies um, and, okay. and preparing, preparing for those. Um, you know, what are, what are some things you believe late game and what are some, some things you like to do? And then, you know, in the course of practice and, and games, maybe even the, the timeout aspect, right. Of saying, okay, Hey, this is what we're going to run. If it's maybe something you haven't done before or done a couple of times, how do you implement and prepare your players for that? I think the first first lesson any young coach is going to find out the hard way is if you haven't practiced it, you ain't running it well, <laughs> right? It just isn't going to happen. Not with high school kids, probably not with college kids in a lot of cases, depending on the level. I mean, you've got to practice it. Uh, it's not fair to put kids in those situations when you haven't practiced it. And so you have to schedule your week out to where you're getting your end of game situations. It can be end of quarter or end of game. It kind of, I mean, there's a difference, but you should be working on either end of quarter or end of game some facet every single day it might be five minutes it might be it might be a five on zero shell for five minutes something but i think that situation becomes more about a player's confidence more so than anything else and if if you're able to say hey we've done this a ton of times before you know just kind of you've got to be the most chill guy in the huddle at that point when you need to make that last minute shot or you need to get that last minute stop but you have to just be able to remind them hey we've done this before all right i think that's first and foremost um, as far as end the game stuff for us, our kids kind of know, like there's a certain point we hit like about a minute and a half left to go in the game. If we're up four, six, eight, we're going to start switching everything. You know, our Seattle call is we're going to switch everything. When we hit about that minute and a half point, we're also, we hit that minute and a half point. We're playing, we're, we're playing man to man about three quarters court. We, we don't want that ball rolling to half court. So we're really just showing three quarters court just to get the clock running. Right. We, we talk about being like a defensive back, you're backpedaling, you're sitting down. Um, there's just certain things that our kids just know. Like we just look at, hey, we're white 75 and we're Seattle. We're switching everything. So we do it. We practice it. There's a comfort level with it. They just kind of nod and they, okay, we've done this a billion times before. If we're behind six to eight points, we have one set that we run. It's just, again, it's our comfort level. We run at the end of every quarter. Our goal is to have the ball at the end of every quarter. We'll hold it for 45 seconds if we have to. And we'll run a set where we're, we're running our, our wings from the corners, our, our wing from the right corner is going to run off a single screen from the four man and a double screen from the three and the five man. It's really a misdirection play. He's not going to be open very often. Teams will switch that. Our three man then goes off the four man, the other direction. He gets open quite a bit, uh, but if he's not open, then we're looking, our one man will drag the ball towards the right sideline and our five man will, will L cut to the top of the key and we'll just duck in for a high low. Our kids know that takes about 12 seconds to get all the way through with a shot and a tip in. Um, and we just, we do it a lot. So if we're down six or eight points and we're just struggling offensively, we're just running that every trip. Uh, it's in their comfort zone. It's, it's something that we can, we know exactly where everybody's at. Uh, we've done it a million times because we do it at the end of the first, second, third quarter. Anyways, we run end of quarter offense probably twice a week for 10, 15 minutes. So again, I think comfort level was really important to relieve pressure in those situations. And we can be having a terrible game. We'll be down six or eight still have a chance to maybe steal one. So you want to get into their, their comfort level a little bit there. Uh, I love my favorite end of game play, like full court end of game. If you think back to Bryce Drew in the NCAA tournament with Valparaiso, 
Uh, I can't remember how many. Was that the late 90s? I can't remember how long ago that was. Some young yeah. guys like, what are you talking about? Mess. Yeah. Um, we run a play called Victory. It's very similar to that. Um, we run it with a defense. We run it without a defense. We'll bring the freshman team over because they don't have a clue what's going on because our varsity guys will cheat. You know how that goes. They'll cheat it like crazy. So what timing of cuts and the details and all that stuff are, it's, it's a beautiful thing when it works. Um, and I always tell the kids that pressure's off to go full court in three to seven seconds and score. It's, you know, it's tough to do. Um, but we only run that if we have to, my favorite, favorite, favorite thing is if, if the other team ties it or takes a lead with under 10 seconds to go, we're going, because I think what ultimately happens is the game is so chaotic. It benefits us to have the ball in that chaos versus the defense who, I think one of the hardest things to do, one of the most underrated things is, is knowing how much time is on the clock defensively late in the game. So I think when you see six seconds on the clock, it feels like that's going to go really fast. And next thing you know, there's been three passes, three dribbles and a tip in in the game. And it's like, how did we lose that? Like that felt like an eternity. So we just want to get in and go long story short. We want to get in and go and space the floor in our break and just really attack. Um, but sometimes I, I just think, I think there's somebody's going to overhelp, somebody's going to overcommit to help, and somebody's going to get a good look. Are we going to make that shot? I don't know, but I think that's our best opportunity. Too many times, I think, even, even when we practice it 100 times, pressure gets the kids, or you're playing in a conference game against a team that's playing you for the second time. They, they have a pretty good idea what you want to do as well, and they make it really difficult for you. So, um, you know, if we, if, we, if we gave up a bucket to tie it or we fall behind, Ultimately, we're, we're big. I know the score. Like, I think that sounds really basic, but I think a lot of kids don't know the score. Uh, know the score, and, and let's get it and go. If they call a timeout, now we got to set something up. That's okay. Let's force them to call a timeout. I also, the flip side of that, defensively, if we score to tie or take the lead, a lot of times I'll call the timeout now because I know what I want to do offensively and create that chaos. And, and now I want to, we, we just tied it or took the lead. I'm going to use that timeout because I want to set my defense. And if it's, you know, if it's under, under 10 seconds, we'll, a lot of times we'll play a, a one, two, two kind of a ball press type thing in that situation, which we don't practice a lot. Uh, but I, we're not trying to be really good at it for 45 seconds. We're trying to be great at it for five to seven seconds in those situations. So uh, again, a lot of stuff there is, and there's a lot of what I wrote about in the book is, is just, this is what I do. It's not necessarily the right way for you and your program, but I try to just pose question after question after question to help coaches figure out what's best for them. You know, what, what does your talent dictate? Uh, what are you able to tolerate uh, as a coach? What do you like? What do you dislike? Um, because that, those are things that just, just a list of questions I wish I would have had 25 years ago would have helped me get there so much faster instead of all the, the painstaking mistakes and, and, you know, learning the hard way. So that was a big motivation behind the book. And, and uh, there's a lot there. I just talked about a lot of stuff in the game, but there's so many different scenarios. I mean, that's, and I think that's another thing I love about our game. It's just different every time. All right. So I'm a, I'm a special education teacher at heart. So the, the learning style discussion for me is always interesting. So mm -hmm. kind of for you, you know, how do you help your players learn you know, slash, how do you help them prepare for a game? How do you help them scout an opponent? You know, kind of take us through that. How do you learn? How do you hit all those learning styles? And then how do you help them prepare? 
I am. Let me let me start by saying this. I am not a keep it simple guy. You may have already figured that out by listening to me. I'm not a keep it simple guy. I was told that a lot as a young coach. You got to keep it simple, this and that. But I also have learned that the more you raise the bar, the more kids want. If you have a good relationship, the more they want to meet that every time you raise that bar. So um, we're constantly talking about things that can build our IQ, you know, whether it be situational stuff. I coach the bench a lot more than I coach the floor during a game. And I got a lot of guys there who probably aren't going to see the floor this year, but next year they're going to be there a lot. So I, anytime I got something that I'm going to turn around and talk to the bench because the guys on the floor are kind of busy. They can't really listen to me at the moment, but we're going to coach every situation. I think obviously repetition is, is huge. I mean, the more repetition you can get on. And when I say we, you know, we don't keep it simple. We have a core, you know, we have core things that we do every year concepts that we really hammer that we know we want to be really good at. So I don't think you have to be super simple, um, but you have to know what's important to you, right? You got to know really what you're good at and what's important to you. That list should be fairly short. Like I should be able to come watch your team play and say, oh man, it's, it's clear that they're this, this, and this are really important to you. I should be able to find three things that are really important to you on, a, on an average to decent night, you know, and, and I think any coach should be able to go to watch another coach and, and just be able to pick out three things. As far as preparing the guys, we're big on scouting reports. I'm huge on scouting reports. And, and I, I kind of hammer one chapter in the book about coaches and say, oh, we just scout ourselves. And I just call them out and said, you're lazy. It's, your job is to give your kids the best chance to win. And if giving them – now, how much you give them, that's entirely up to you. But if you don't give them something on who you're playing, if you're not walking through some stuff, if you're not giving them – you know, I, I think you can win so many high school basketball games by taking away option one for sure. And if you can take option one and option two, that's the equalizer in high school basketball because most teams don't have two great ball handlers. Most teams don't have two great bigs. You know, the whole let's get this guy in foul trouble thing, the challenge him to, to get two fouls on this guy early. There's just so many things that you can take away from teams. And in a lot of cases, teams that are more talented than you. So, you know, if you're a guy who says, in my mind, if you're a guy that says, you know, we just scout ourselves, we don't worry about everybody else. I think you're cheating your kids a little bit. I think your, your kids, they, they want the best chance to win. And my job is to give them the best chance to win. So our scouting report is really, really extensive. It, it's, it can be 10, 12 pages some nights. Doesn't mean we give our kids 10 or 12 pages. We give them a, a cheat sheet off of that 10 or 12 pages. The night before a game, maybe two nights before a game, depending on how much time we have to prepare, we're walking through sets. We're talking about how we want to guard this screen or what, or what we want to do with this screen. Um, we're reading through the scouting report together. We're, we're taking away their, you know, their number. We're, we're very clear about this is their best score. This is what he does well. This is what we want to take away. And I think, um, you know, I, I think that's really, really important in high school basketball. I think you can win a lot of games by, but just being more prepared than the other team. And um, it, it's hard. It's not easy. You know, it takes a lot of time. There's a lot of, uh, you've got to be great at managing time. I think as a coach, you've got to be able to grade papers here and watch film here at the same time. Uh, not that any of us would do that at the same time, but you know how it goes. Um, no, we do. It's okay. Yeah, we do. We do. And just, you know, I, I'm never going to walk away from a loss and feel like it was because I cut a corner. Like I just can't live with that. That's, that's, that's kind of my why with coaching is making sure that kids never have any regrets about whatever their time is, whether it be, you know, four years, the high school level or beyond, 
Um, so I need to make sure I live that and I walk that. And I think that preparation for me is really, really important. And I think it's made me a much better coach. I think I learned so much more about the game from guys I coach against. You know, I learned a lot about the game from just watching film on other teams. So I, I think, and every once in a while, we'll have some fun and we'll put their sets in and, and we'll call it whatever the name of their school is and we'll run it against them. And, uh, you know, our, our kids love doing that too. So I think there's, you, you can find a way to make that fun as well. All right. So I, I have an interesting follow-up to something you said just now, which was if I watch Harlem basketball, what two mm-hmm. or three things am I going to notice are important to coach winter and Harlem basketball? Man-to-man defense, communication. Uh, those are two things that if, if, if the energy is low, you're going to hear me uh, just yelling and screaming and, and being the biggest cheerleader on the sideline until, because I think energy is contagious. So, uh, you know, I'll give them as much as I need to give them on the sideline to get them going. So early in games, you were a no middle team defense. So you'll, you'll hear me screaming no middle the whole game. Like, like uh, people in the stands are like, is, he's, he's got to know his kids know it by now. He said it 4,000 times tonight. But it's, it's not about what – it's about the energy level, and it's about modeling things for your kids. So I know there's a lot of coaches that just say, I, I can't do a whole lot on game night. I'm just going to sit down. I've done my work. Uh, but game night, I'm their biggest cheerleader. Like, I'm, I'm going to provide energy no matter what. Like, that's something I can do. With, it doesn't take a whole lot of talent on my part to be able to do that. So we're going we're gonna to guard defensively. We're going to push the ball. Uh, doesn't mean we're, we're, we're looking to shoot early, but we're trying to put pressure on the defense. We're going to get up and down. And then – most years you're going to see us pressing. Um, we run a, a high, what I call a hybrid zone press. And um, it's something that's, again, it's kind of that evolution of 25 years where I used to be a man-to-man press guy, run and jump guy. Um, just wanted to control trap areas a little more. So I started playing around with the diamond press. And I, the diamond press is great when they throw it to the ball side, but on the weak side, we would get killed. And I saw Don Showalter talk at a, a PGC clinic a couple, probably, man, what was it? Probably five, six years ago about how they rotate. They play a diamond press with Team USA. He was coaching, I think, the 16 under USA team back then. And so obviously he was deep and had a lot of talent. And he would talk about how on an entry pass against a diamond press, they would rotate to a 2-2-1 zone. Because every time they tried to chase that trap 20, 30 feet, by the time they got there, Ball's already hit the middle or the sideline and it's gone and they're just chasing it down the floor. And I'm like, man, this is perfect. And I just had one of those teams where I had 11 guys coming back that all had to play and we had to find some way to get them tired. So that system just really fit in perfectly for us. So you'll, you'll see us pressing, you'll see us, and we fall back to a man-to-man and just high energy. Uh, communication is extremely important for us. Um, early help, rotations. You, you should see second and third efforts defensively from our guys quite a bit. All right, so I want to go. What is where's Illinois high school basketball going? What's what's the future? What where man is it rule changes? I, is it is it style of play? Is it question right here? Is it well? I mean, it could be uh, it, how we change our how we change our classes, right? Three A, four A, back to two A. Where where you, even where the state championship is, right? Because that's always a a giant debate, right? Every year, and it goes back and forth. So where are we going with high school basketball in Illinois? I loved our state tournament back when it was two classes. I, I thought it was a, just a, a great atmosphere both weekends. I think the move to four classes, um, you know, it was, it was pressure to that. Let's get more teams trophies. 
And I think they thought let's get more teams involved. So it's going to increase revenue too, for our, our state association. And it just simply has gone the opposite direction on them. I think the, the interest level has been lost. I, I tell you what, my rock falls team that year I took over, we had 750 kids in a two class system. We were the smallest big school in the state. And we lose in the super section of Schaumburg. who has got 3000 kids. We don't get those. We don't get those games anymore. You know, we just don't get them. Uh, when I was at Oregon, we had 600 kids. We were, we were one of the bigger, small schools and we won a two point game in a regional championship game against a school that had like 112 kids. Just a, just a great atmosphere. And, and back then it was, you know, if you were that small school winning that regional was your state championship. You just, you just put it in perspective a little bit differently. 100%. Uh, I would love to see, I would love to see us go maybe scale back to three classes. I think that would be really good for Illinois. I'm not sure it's going to happen, but I would love to see him try just kind of scaling it back a little bit. I would love to see a shot clock in Illinois. I think it's time. I think uh, my thing. And and, and I'm a traditionalist. You got to, and I'll I'll say that and just qualify with that for a long time. I resisted that, but I think it's just time. I think it's, we got to stop with the excuses about it's too much money or people won't know how to run it and this and that. I don't, they've got it figured out in Europe. They've got it figured out in a lot of different States. You know, it's um, I think the referees can handle it. I think that's, I think uh, that's whether the ball hit the rim or not is not going to be the hardest thing they do that night. You know, the block charge call is still going to be the hardest thing they do that night. There's just, so I just think we've made too many excuses for too long. And I just think it'll speed the game up. Um, Some coaches will be ready for it. Some coaches won't be. But uh, I feel confident the way we run our quick hitters that we'll be okay with it. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, strategically, we might have a little bit of an advantage those first few years while some other coaches catch up. But, yeah, I think the state tournament is a, uh, was once a, just a great, great thing in Illinois. It's still super hard, man. I, I, see, I see guys who – I was at a coach's clinic down in Georgia a couple of months ago, or about a month ago, actually speaking. And, uh, you know, you see these guys that have won 10 straight state championships in Georgia. I'm like – yeah, you're not doing that in Illinois. Like that's just, uh, you know, it just doesn't happen in Illinois. You, you, you win one, you've done something pretty special. You know, I've been down there once and and uh, lost in a super sectional three times now, and and uh, that's uh, that's an accomplishment. You know, but uh, every time I applied for a job in the last twenty years, oh, so and so, you know, he's won two state championships in Kansas, and then I go research Kansas, and they've got you know, 150 schools in seven classes. So you win three games, you're a state champ or something like that. So um, I still think our setup is great. I still think it's our talent and, and the ability to win a state championship is a huge accomplishment. But I think the process broke somewhere on the lines of splitting from two classes to four classes. There's so much that you just said that I agree with that I would, I would like to get into. But uh, for all of our listeners, we'll move on to our last two segments. Um, so many okay. Illinois things I would love to hit on. Um, so for our last two segments, we always start with the 30 second timeout. Um, it's your opportunity to speak about whatever you want to talk about. Uh, you can talk about you, your family, your program, um, a charity, something you're interested in, a hobby outside of basketball, anything you want to talk about 30 seconds, the floor is yours. 30 seconds, man. I think, uh, man, I'm a huge slow, a fast pitch softball guy. I never coached softball until last year, but coaching girls has been awesome. They listen, uh, guys, you should try that more often. <laughs> um, but I'm going to divert from that. I think one message I'd give to coaches right now is, you know, if you're a young coach, make sure you find, uh, uh your, your future wife has got to be all in. <laughs> all right. That's huge. 
Um, your family's got to be all in. I think when your family is all in, it can be a magical thing. Um, a lot of coaches you hear, you know, they, they step aside because of family. My family is going to push me right back into it every chance they get because I know how much I love it. So I've been blessed as far as that goes. Not everybody's going to be that lucky, but, um, you know, just understand the impact it's going to have. It's going to, it's going to be a lot for your family, your parents in the stands, your wife. They got to, they got to sit through a lot. Was that 30 seconds? Uh, yeah, it was good. That was, that was, really good. That was good. No, no, there's you didn't, a timer get, to, you didn't even get to the second horn. It was really good. You know, oh, second. sweet. Referee's nice. not over there. You come on, guys. You gotta go. You gotta go. Come on. That's not um, the way it goes in a game. I can tell you that much. Yeah, exactly. That. They're over there before the <laughs> first one. Uh, all right. So our last segment's quick hitters, just kind of random questions. Um, right. it could be a basketball or anything. I'm gonna add one uh, that we we didn't okay. have on there, but best player you coached against, like a guy uh, you went up against, and you're like, oh boy, what are we gonna do here? Hands down, and I, Sean Livingston, hands down. When, when Sean was healthy back when he was young, I mean, he was being compared to Magic Johnson. I don't think that was a stretch. I mean, he was he, he may have been more talented than Magic before that, just that awful knee injury. All right, so we, we like to do some random ones. So are you an iPhone guy or an Android guy? 100% iPhone. Nah, there he is. Uh, your favorite coach as a kid growing up? I'm old. Uh, it, was, it was the coach, Ditka. Oh, I was an 85, you know, I was, I was 11 go. when the bears won the super bowl, the last, you know, now yeah. I'm 47. So I'm still waiting for number two, but uh, the coach, uh, he was, he was just a great personality, but you know, as a young coach, I'd say Dick Bennett, Rick Pitino were some of the guys, John Chaney at temple guys. I love watching Pete Carrill at Princeton. You weren't, right. you weren't trying to fight Calipari then as John Chaney. <laughs> you weren't trying to fight, you know, get... no, I, no, I'll, <laughs> I'm no, just we'll, teasing. We'll, we'll pretend that we'll pretend that didn't happen. But, yeah, there we uh, go. Hey, Janey was fiery, man. He was. He was. He effort. Hey, I, after a couple of Packer fan guests we've had, I, I'm I'm good with him. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the Bears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is is one of my former players at Boylan is playing for the Packers right now, and I'm a huge Bear fan. So it's like, um, and I'm a huge Cubs fan, and I got a former player that got drafted by the Cardinals in the first round. So, oh boy, you know, just a reminder that God has a sense of humor. Amen to yeah. that. <laughs> All right. So for you, where do you see yourself in five years? I think I'm still doing what I'm doing. You know, I think the, the only exception might be, here's the tough thing I've got coming is my daughter will be a freshman when my son is a senior. So now he graduates and moves on. She's a sophomore. I'm going to have to miss some games since we're going to play some of the same nights in our, in our league. We, we both play Friday nights. They play Tuesday. We play Wednesday. So we have that night off where we're not overlapping but Fridays, um, yeah, that's going to be tough. But I think I'll be doing what I'm doing now. I think it'll be tough for me to, to give it up just quite yet, um, especially if my, you know, my son's away at college. My daughter's going to be going away pretty soon. I'll need something to continue to fill that time. All right, kind of a simple one. Your favorite candy? Uh, this is old school. I'm, a, I'm an everlasting gobstoppers guy. Okay. Ooh. There I've, go. I've got them in my yeah. pocket all the time. My softball girls bring them to me all the time because they know I'm chewing on the whole practice. And yeah, old school. I remember when I was in school, uh, there was a store by that was still kind of old school by my my school that you could get like the Everlasting Gobstoppers for like five cents in the individual wrappers. Oh, yep, yep. It was it was an old school store. It was kind of on its way out, but you could get all. all I've got those boxes. Candy. I've got boxes of them in a drawer. You can't eat a lot of them. 
you know, because a, a box sure. will last you forever. It's kind of under everlasting, right? So my, my softball girls keep buying them. I just keep throwing them in this drawer and I can't keep up, but uh, I appreciate it. But all right. So, so best, yeah. best game or games that you've coached in or watched. So maybe one game you've coached in that's one of your best and one game you just were yeah. as a fan. So the best game I've ever coached in for me was a sectional final game. It was Rock Falls against Boylan. Before I got to Boylan, I was coaching at Rock Falls. Um, and that was the year I talked about. That was the year Rock Falls obviously won the game because we lost to Sean bringing that super sectional. But we went to overtime. We had played a Class A schedule all year. We played small schools all year long. And so just adapting to the speed of the game against the bigger schools took us a while. We fell behind 22 to 9. I think we are down 22 to 13 at halftime. Um we we tied it, had the ball at the end of the game, and we had a kid that uh, Seth Blair, who's in AAA with the, the Red Sox right now. He's like 32 pitching AAA. He took five years off, and he went back, and he's throwing like 99. Um, just tell you what kind of an athlete he is, just an insane athlete. He was the Pac-10 pitcher of the year at Arizona State in 2010, I think it was. Seth missed a layup, like kind of like trying to avoid a charge last minute, just kind of changed the angle a little bit, missed it. So we go to overtime, and uh, – 41-41, we got the ball with about 50 seconds left. And, you know, we talked about high IQ kids. We're going to hold the ball. And we had a set called, and uh, and I noticed that Boylan switched one matchup. So, and I never do this, but I just started screaming. And there's 5,000 people in this gym at Rock Valley College. I started screaming. We're just going flat, flat, flat. We get the ball to the kid who's got a post player on him. Now he's a guard. And I just know he's going to get by this kid and force something. And I, I don't know what, but. He gets in the paint, kicks it to the left corner. He drives one dribble, pulls a couple defenders over. We get that cross-court uh, skip pass right in front of our bench. And Seth was that kid that elevated on a jump shot just beautifully, like higher than everybody else. And he just did it effortlessly. And he, he hit a 24-footer at the buzzer, and the place just erupted. You know, 5,000 people in there, and it was, it was insane. It was one of the best endings I've ever seen. The other one, I would say uh, Jalen Brunson against Jalil Okafor uh, in the state. Was that a semifinal game, if I remember right? Uh, the winner was going to the championship. The year before, Brunson beat my boiling team uh, in the super sectional by a few points. And he was a sophomore then. I think this was a senior year. And he scored, what did he score, 56 out of 68 points. Jalil Okafor went like 34, and, 34 points and 17 rebounds or something insane like that. And Whitney Young beat they beat him by like it was 71 68 or something like something like that but Brunson had 56 out of 68 that was the best game I think I've ever seen down at the state tournament all right so I know we said we're gonna let you pick but you've talked about a lot of your end game so I'm gonna throw one at you here all right so so you got ball up you call maybe you call timeout you got sideline out of bounds right in front of your bench and you're you're half the court there uh, what are you going to for your end game set I don't want you to give it away like so all your opponents know but you know, what, what is some of your, I guess, maybe concepts or, or things you want to try to try to get action wise. One thing I love to do there, there's two plays I really like doing. They both kind of involve, I, I like misdirection stuff in that situation because you've got so much pressure on the first cutter. Uh, Butler Stevens used to run a play with Butler where he would throw it all the way to the opposite corner. You know, so if you're inbound on the near sideline, he's, he's, he's spotting the shooter up in the far corner. It's kind of a high risk, high reward thing. Cause if, if they don't bite on it, the kid makes that cross-court pass, you're probably not getting a shot off. But I love that open look if we need a three on that backside. Um, and then we've also run uh, – we run some screen-to-screener action where we, we kind of go 
um, we're dribbling maybe left across top of the key with a, with a cutter coming and then cross it back to a screen. The screener coming on that near side, just similar to that end of quarter play that we run that we talked about. Um, I think anytime you, I think misdirection is really good when, when you're in a high pressure situation late in games, because again, kids will overhelp in those situations. Well, and a lot of teams go to switching now too. So, you know, right. you force, force them to communicate, force them to communicate it, what's it, going on. And if you're, you've got to have that, that high-low option or something in there if a team does switch, just, just a little something extra just in case you, you don't get that shooter open. Well, Coach, we thank you so much for being on. Listeners, again, check out Coach's book, The Journey, Lessons from the Hardwood by Mike Winter. Phenomenal guest, uh, phenomenal coach. Uh, so, Coach, thank you for joining us. Thank you for giving an hour of your time and, and to our listeners. So thank you again. Hey, I had a blast, guys. Uh, Coachwinners.com. You can get the book there. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble and really every other site that sells books. So appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Plicky. For more show content and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter, at After The Time Out, or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our previous episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts by searching After The Time Out. We appreciate you listening. Tune in next time for more coaching content in-game, out of the game, and anything in between.